This week we are talking about The Matrix. The Matrix. The Matrix. The Matrix came out on the 31st of March, 1999. So there were only a few months into 1999. I do remember that that year felt very apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. We had always grown up with 1999 being like the end of times. You know, there was Space 1999 and Prince's song Party Like 1999 and all of that. And that year there was... Already, there was a major snowstorm and a major hurricane, I think, happened that year. Everybody was worried about Y2K and that all the computers would melt down. Yeah. So there was this idea that computers were already too important in our lives and might, you know, it might be a problem. And there was this growing globalism going on. The euro became the official coinage of the European Union starting on the 1st of January, 1999. So suddenly there was one coin for, you know, all the 12 plus nations of the European Union. I think there were more by that point. Mm -hmm. Early in the year was also Bill Clinton's impeachment trial. And he was, uh, he was put on trial mm -hmm. in January, and then the Senate acquitted him in February. I remember it was also the big year of the Serbian ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing was suddenly like back in the news for the first time since World War II. It was definitely an interesting year leading up to, to Y2K. I just our, I remember our, our culture at the time, like people were starting to do crazy, uh, crazy prepper things, getting ready for it because they thought they thought everything was just going to completely fall apart and the computers wouldn't be able to function, you know, when we moved into the year 2000. Technology and movies at that point, you know, was really about to make a turn. And, and I feel like The Matrix kind of issued that in. It was one of those movies where they used technology that we hadn't really seen before. And then that movie, after that, you saw commercials using um you know, the, the, uh, what is it? The, it's not, um, stop action, but you know, it's the, um, the wire foo technology where you're suspended in the air and you're able to spit around in the 360 cameras. And, uh, you know, it just, it really changed the way action movies were made. It was a, it was definitely a turning, a turning point in the movie scene for sure, because it, it just changed, it changed everything, it changed everything. The matrix is kind of a pastiche of stuff and a lot of that stuff had been going on for a while so fans of hong kong action films were familiar with wire work going back to the 80s which is sort of the golden age of hong kong action films it took all the way until 1999 the end of the 90s for it to seep into mainstream american films a little background on the film. This was made by the then Wachowski brothers, who are now the Wachowski sisters. Mm -hmm. They hadn't made a film anywhere near this magnitude prior to this. The last big film they had made wasn't that big. It was called Bound. I rather enjoyed Bound, but film critics in general didn't like it. But audiences did and somehow they managed to get a big enough budget to make this thing 
and they spent a ton of time on that opening sequence. They ended up going way behind schedule. Eventually, the film went 118 days out of a 90-day shoot, which is unheard of. That's like, that's 28 days behind schedule. That's that's like a third, again, as long. And normally, in most films, studios will fire the director at that point, and they'll bring in another director to finish the film. That didn't happen on The Matrix because the Wachowskis sent the studio the opening sequence and and they were so blown away by that opening sequence with Trinity running from Agent Smith that they're like, OK, we'll give them the extra time to do this. And, you know, time is money on film. So, right. It's it's amazing that 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 happened. And honestly, this was probably one of the first movies that I had that I had watched the watched Keanu Reeves in a film, and I love him. Okay, don't get me wrong, I love him. Huge Keanu Reeves fan, uh, you know, from Bill and Ted all the way up to you know John John Wick and beyond. Um, but this was honestly, uh, you know, I got I have to be honest with myself when it comes to Keanu Reeves because you know after the Bill and Ted films. It, it was really hard not to watch him as Ted or to see Ted slip through in his characters. So this was the first movie that I had seen where I didn't really see that slip through. I still love this film to this day, even though watching it sometimes I did have half moments where I was like, hey, this is kind of dated. But, you know, it is what it is. It came out in 1999. And, uh, you know, a lot, I was amazed also watching it a second time, uh, you know, during this this year, watching how much of it, the tech, how much of the technology still seems kind of relevant, like it could actually happen in, in a, I guess it is post-apocalyptic world, you know, where humans are being used as, as fuel for the machine. It made such a mark that uh, it's considered to be one of the best science fiction films of all time, and it was at, added to the National Film Registry for Preservation in 2012. That's pretty cool. That is that is cool. And I, I'm i going to get into some serious nitpicks here, because the film is so well made that it's few, when it does have flaws, those few flaws really irk me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'll get into that. But since you covered a lot of ground in that opening statement, so let me <laughs> let me break that down in a few ways. To begin with, let me say um, from a technical aspect, I watched the Ultra HD 4K version of this. Oh, okay. So that was released in 2018. And so for the first time on home video in over a decade or more, you could watch the matrix more like, and I'm not saying like, but more like it looked in the theater. So the, the matrix film, as we'll talk about more when we talk about the plot has two realities. One is the real life. And one is the life inside the computer, inside the matrix. Mm -hmm. And, in real life, the color is more blue. And in the Matrix, the color is more green. Yep. Now, that works if your director of photography, your cinematographer, plans that out at the time of shooting. They did that with the following Matrix films, Matrix 2, Matrix 3. 
they did not do that as much with this film. They wanted it more emphasized. So they put an artificial green filter on it in post-production to make it look more green when they released it to home video so it would match The Matrix 2 and The Matrix 3 better. In this, it's it's there, but it's a lot more subtle. Mm-hmm. Except on home video where it's really there. And the problem with doing that is it crushes the blacks and all the the a lot of the more subtle details in the frame are lost because you you're replacing it with this green color. Mm-hmm. So from a production designer perspective, I like that they, that they did that, the green colors, but from a cinematographer perspective, I don't like that they did that. So I've got mixed feelings about it. I watched it without the green filter in this new HD version they restored it back to what it, the way it was. And I got to say, I think it's better without it, but it's still not the same as it was in the theater. So they kind of have, they kind of, it looks like to my eye, like a halfway in between the two. I don't know. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. But as long as we're talking about the look of, of the matrix, we come to my first major quibble with this film is they have created this fantasy world for humans to live in. So humans will continue like going to their jobs and doing all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very film noir and it's very cool to look at, but, but like in the first scene, Carrie Ann Moss is hacking, you know, and she's in, she's in the matrix and she's being chased by the first, the police. And then, you know, the, the special agents sent by the matrix, you know, the, the computers is sent after her and it's this run down hotels and dirty alleys and everything like that. And I'm like, wait, you're trying to make this perfect place. Why do you have to make it look like a dystopia? Like if you're the computers, that's the last thing you want. You want the people to think that it's this awesome, beautiful, happy place, right? Why yeah. <laughs> did the computers make the make the fake world look like a dystopia? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, why, why do you have to be in some dirty old hotel room to hack, to hack a computer system? You know, it's, it, it kind of makes me wonder if those were glitches created in the matrix for people to go in and kind of infiltrate it. Maybe. Um, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but that's kind of a side theory I've always had because you know, it, it that also did not make sense to me. I mean, if it's a computer generated world, that us as humans are supposed to believe. Why would you have dirty abandoned hotel rooms and nasty alleyways? Yeah. Why doesn't everybody live in Hawaii? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so exactly. They do kind of address this later on when Morpheus, I think, is being tortured or one of the two, Morpheus or Neo, mm-hmm. I forget. Uh, Agent Smith says, you know, the first time, the first version of the Matrix was too perfect and humans didn't believe it. So they had to make it less, less perfect. But still. Yeah. And he complained about the smell. It it was when he was, when uh, Morpheus was being tortured and, and uh, it was just before he was rescued by Neo and, and Trinity in a helicopter. I, I remember that scene too. And, and when he said the smell, actually that kind of brought it to life for me too, because, you know, it's the city, dark alleyways, dirty. I could see how, you know, that the smell, uh, you know, and then he's like the smell, 
if that's such a thing. It's like, yeah, nice. So you had also mentioned Keanu, and okay. <laughs> Let me unpack Keanu. I think he's good, but has a very limited range. Mm -hmm. And he's good when he's in things like, I, I loved him in Bill and Ted's. I thought he was great in Point Break. He's good when he oh, plays yeah. the sort of naive guy that has to be schooled. And that works in this first Matrix because he is that naive guy that has to be schooled by Morpheus. Mm -hmm. But I still think that he lacks some depth as an actor. And it shows at times, like for me, when he's like, wakes up and he's like, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> that suddenly he's back. It's like, there's Ted. There's Ted. I see Ted yeah, right Ted. there. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And so when I see him in, in something like Bram Stoker's Dracula, I see Ted from Bill and Ted's going to Transylvania. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When he's in something opposite really good actors, like in Much Ado About Nothing, he was opposite Kenneth Branagh and all these Shakespearean actors, and he stuck out like a, a sore th thumb. And I mm -hmm. feel that that's the way... That's a, a problem. Now, as an actor, if you have a limited range, one way to get around that is to do action films. Schwarzenegger mm -hmm. could barely speak English when he started acting in in movies. But he took roles that focused on his body and caught and he only had to say, I'll be back or something like that. You know, he had like, they'd give him like yeah. one line to say, you know? That's like the same line he's had in every movie. <laughs> yeah, but my point being that if he doesn't have to deliver a lot of lines, he just has to, to shoot people and, you know, and stuff, then suddenly it's more about performing physical actions than emoting. And mm -hmm. so I think... One of the smartest things Keanu did for his career starts right here when he decides to take on action roles yes. like this and speed and leave behind trying to do Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> I feel like that was his agent trying too hard and putting him in fil films with big name characters to move his his career forward, which it did. Otherwise, he wouldn't have ended up on The Matrix, but... Uh, you know, those, those other films are like, eh, eh, except for Point Break, because I freaking love that movie. Yeah. But back to the Matrix, I think that, that he was surrounded by really good actors. You had Lawrence Fishburne. Trinity was played by Carrie Ann Moss, who also did an amazing job. Joe Pantalone uh, mm -hmm. was, um, Cypher. And mm -hmm. by the way, I also, I recently watched Memento which had Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantaloni in it. And I noticed that in both of those films, they are major characters. Mm -hmm. And in both of those films, they have very few on-screen lines with each other. Okay. In the matrix, they might be on the phone. There's one brief scene they have together, but in general, they're next to each other in the same room and they almost don't talk to each other. I thought it was really weird. Yeah, that is weird. Although you know that he's going to betray them. Bef as soon as he appears on screen, you're like, that's the guy that's going to betray them. 
Well, yeah, and he's the only guy out of the group that has kind of a bad guy name, too. So, I mean, it's almost like they made it obvious before they needed to. They should have given him a less obvious name. And I, I wasn't a fan of his, you know, especially his, his scene where he was just like, wish I would have just taken the blue pill, man. You know, it's like, oh, okay, okay. Well, there's there it is. He's going to be the guy that, that, that backstabs everybody. Aside from when he dropped the phone into the garbage can when they went into the fight scene and lost Morpheus, basically. This brings up another problem I have with The Matrix, another mm-hmm. nitpick or quibble, which is that I think it broadcasts too much. Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of surprises in it. Like, mm-hmm. I expect everything to happen. I expected Joe Pantalone, you know, Cypher to betray them. I expected... Almost, I would have liked a film with a little more surprises. Now, they wallpaper yeah. that over with really good effects, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so you're too busy watching it. But there are other films, I think... Dark City is a good example of one that has a similar kind of virtual versus real world, also mm-hmm. film noirish. Came out one year earlier than this, that I think is a bit smarter in plot than The Matrix is. Once again, I'm only nitpicking because I love the movie, but right. there is a lot of things I don't like about the movie. And I can't not, you've already brought it up. So I wanted to, to, to bring these up in little bits, but you, yeah. you like said all of this right at the beginning. So I have to address these, <laughs> all these things that you mentioned. It's just kind of how I roll, Eric. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let me red pill all of the people who have been completely blinded by the greatness of the Matrix. Let me yes. give you the red pill. And, and the red pill here is... Humans as batteries is one of the stupidest plot devices ever. Like mm-hmm. humans are incredibly ineffective sources of energy. They would be better off like, you know, raising plankton or something <laughs> instead of having <laughs> humans and with this elaborate machines and stuff like that to keep them in, in little um, pods and feed off their energy. Like that is the stupidest thing ever. Humans as batteries just if they had come up with anything else like, Oh, we're using their dream ability or something that's uniquely human about humans, but you know, electric eels. Hello. There's a lot better. Yeah. They're much better species that to, to draw power from. Yes. Having a farm of electric eels and, and you know what? Eels probably don't care if they're in the matrix. (laughs) Right. Right. They don't care. The matrix to an eel. All the computer programming has to be is a big ocean. Like, you don't even have to have anything else except other things for them to eat. Let's get a little into the philosophy behind The Matrix. Now, this is another nitpick I have, which is that the film tries to be very philosophical, but I Mm -hmm. feel that it is very, it treats the philosophy very superficially, which Mm -hmm. is fine if they didn't focus on it so much. Right. I will contrast this with Star Wars, where... In the beginning, in the first few films, the original trilogy, the force is just this mystical force. And I guess Luke will say something like, I'm Mm -hmm. trying, you know, or whatever. And Yoda will say, don't try, do. That same line appears in the Matrix somewhere, like something similar. Yeah, he was like, I can show you the door, but you have to open it. Yeah. 
And to be honest with you, that is a phrase that I have used my whole entire life when I have, you know, helped friends, when even when I've spoken to my own children, like I can give you all of this information about life, but it, it's ultimately up to you to take this device, this advice and move forward with it. Right. Uh, the, the line I was thinking of is during Neo's training, he's fighting Morpheus and Morpheus says, stop trying to hit me and hit me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that to me was like the Yoda line of do or do not. There is no try. Do or do not. There is no try. But the problem, the problem that I have is Star Wars leaves it there and says, mm -hmm. okay, there is this philosophy. You can get into it and think about it, but that's on you. Whereas the Matrix tries to, to give you more of it, but still treats it a little superficially. I'm like, if you're going to mm -hmm. spend that much time on it, I wish you'd go deeper. Yeah. I will say that one of the advantages of the 4K release is it has commentary tracks, which Ooh. is pretty normal for most DVDs these days. Mm -hmm. And the digital downloads the same way. Now, but you get like a casting crew commentary, which I listened to a little bit of, and you get like the effects and editors commentary, mm -hmm. which is fine. But what I thought, thought was really neat on the special features of this is that it had one, uh, it had the, the composer giving a commentary and he doesn't speak at all during the music. And all of the, all of the vocals have been dropped out. So nothing but the music. So it just oh, plays cool. the music and then mm -hmm. he comments when there's no music playing, which is kind of cool. The other thing that it had was it had a philosopher's commentary. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So they had, um, oh, they had a film critics commentary on there, which is mm -hmm. one thing. But then they had a straight up philosopher's comment commentary where they had Dr. Cornell West mm -hmm. and oh, Ken Wilber. Cool. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. So I listened to a little bit of that and they, they uh, of course, they adore the movie and they weren't as hard on it when it comes to a philosophical sense as I was. I mentioned that this is a pastiche of different stuff. And mm -hmm. one thing, and one of the reasons I compare it to Star Wars frequently is because it it follows the what uh, Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. It follows it almost exactly and this is mm -hmm. these are this is um according to like monomyth theory the idea that they're the same myths that we keep retelling over and over again one of them being yes yeah one of them being the hero's journey and mm -hmm. star wars follows that to a t and so does the matrix that's mm -hmm. one of its influences i mentioned that it was also basically a cyberpunk film oh totally yeah Influenced yeah. by cyberpunk literature and the writings of, of authors like Philip K. Dick. Now, we had seen other stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Blade Runner and We Will Remember It For You Wholesale was remade as um, Total Recall. So there, there mm -hmm. had been some things like that. Oh, I love Total Recall, by the way. That's one of my favorites, too. Yeah. And it plays with some of the same ideas of how do you know what's real? You know? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And yep. so that's where we get into some of the philosophy about how do you know what's real and references to uh, mythology. Morpheus's name comes from mythology. A bunch of their names come from mythology. Trinity, of course, is prominent in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. And as Dr. 
Cornell West pointed out in his commentary on this, the Trinity doesn't actually appear in the Bible. He said, uh, this is the direct quote, Trinity itself is non-biblical, concocted. You don't find it within the scriptures of the um, world's historic religions, but at the same time, it's a doctrine concocted and created in order to make sense of the complex meanings that flow mm -hmm. from the various narratives of the scripture. So you keep track of the three different dimensions of the Godhead, unquote. Now, I come from a Christian background. I grew up in church. And so watching this was a, was a different um, kind of perspective a little bit for me on the Trinity aspect. You know, Christianity was not the only religion that had a Trinity. There were several that, that had a Trinity. And no, the Bible did not mention the Trinity, but it did mention the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is the Trinity in the, uh, you know, in the Christian religion. And I'm talking about New Testament but also, uh, the one thing I was wanting to mention is the name of their ship, which was the Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has been depicted as a great king who not only restored Babylon to its former glory, but he transformed it into a city of light. So I, I thought that that was a good choice for their name, you know, for the ship, because that was basically what they were trying to do. They were trying to save humanity and, and uh, prevent humans from just becoming slaves to the machine and fuel for the machine. So... I thought that was neat symbolism that they chose that they chose that word. And, you know, when, of course, back when I was a heavily practicing Christian, I was delighted that that, you know, they pulled Bible references, too, and, and you know, didn't just try to make it uh, some. <clears throat> well, when I first saw it, I was like hardcore Christian and I don't want to offend people by this, but you got to keep in mind, this is a, a, the way a lot of um Christian conservatives think they think that it, any religion outside of Christianity is a cult. So, you know, back then I was thinking, oh, okay, well, they didn't just turn it into a big Buddhist thing. Like they threw some Christian stuff in there too. When, when I was in college, my college professor in English literature or something once said to me something that stuck with me that writers are the worst critics of their own work. Mm -hmm. And by that, she didn't mean that, like, when most people say that, they mean, oh, we're much too harsh on ourselves, we're much too critical of our own writing. Mm -hmm. But that's not what she meant. She meant that critical interpretation, literary criticism, the worst people to do that is the person that wrote it. They have the least insight into what they actually wrote. Mm -hmm. And there's something to that in that if you, any kind of work of art, music, painting, films, photography, one of the greatest things about art is that everybody interprets it their own way. You mm -hmm. get something out of it or don't get something out of it based on, what you get out of it, looking at it, you know, there's mm -hmm. nobody saying this is the one right way or one right interpretation of this, which is what kind of annoys me when I go online and find people like analyzing song lyrics and saying, this is exactly what they meant. You know, a guy in the band said that this is what they meant. Well, I don't care what a guy in the band said. That's not what that song means to me. 
Yeah, just like when people are talking about Justin Bieber dancing to his song Yummy Yummy and he touches his hat, they're like, oh, that means Pizzagate. No, it doesn't mean Pizzagate. <laughs> and the song was written right after he was married and he was singing about his wife and even mentioned it in an interview. Okay, let's not go there. Thank you. But even, even that he may, wrote it about his wife, I don't necessarily want to know that. Right. I, I, to me, it's... I will interpret yummy, yummy to mean what I want yummy, yummy to mean. Right. <laughs> and I feel the same way about the Matrix, except for one thing, I normally do not care what the directors have to say about their own movie because mm -hmm. either it's hype or they're not remembering or their experience is, is different from mine. And I don't it's it's not important to me, but I think it is important with this movie to tackle one thing because it's mm -hmm. so blatantly obvious. First of all, we mentioned that the Wachowskis are now, uh, they're trans women now. Mm -hmm. they, yes. they were men when they made this, and they have transitioned to women. And there, is, there was long a fan theory that the Matrix represents sort of coming out and being who you really are. Mm -hmm. And originally the character of Switch is called Switch for a reason. Uh, she's played by Belinda McClory in this film, and Belinda plays her both in The Matrix and out of The Matrix, but originally they had intended two actors to play that part. Oh, okay. A male actor in The Matrix, and in the real world, a female actress. So she he changes gender going in and out of The Matrix. She was already kind of an androgynous character in that film. And all the women are, right? The, mm -hmm. so, yeah. so even Carrie Ann Moss, she's very, uh, she, her, she has very structured features and she's very attractive, but she's definitely mm -hmm. androgynous. Yes. And so is Switch. And I hate to say it, but so in his own way is Keanu. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. So I don't think I can leave this on the table without bringing it up, that the Matrix as a metaphor for gender awakening, gender awakening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that can't be overlooked as a one possible interpretation of this film. Yeah. I, uh, I actually was today years old when I came across that theory, uh, as I was getting ready for the show this morning, I was looking, I was just, you know, out of curiosity, um, whenever we do this, I always read up um, and that was one theory that I didn't even know existed until today. So I really wish I would have had more time to explore that before we went into this podcast. But it's still interesting. And I, I actually look forward to diving deeper into that at some point, maybe even later today. <laughs> There's so many little things to get into. I love all the Alice in Wonderland oh, yes. references because I'm a huge fan of Alice in Wonderland. So the white rabbit, the red pill and the blue pill, mm -hmm. all of that. That was a really interesting, uh, you know, bit of the movie for me. I was really digging on the Superman references in there. It took me this time watching it to realize that's what kind of what was going on. For instance, when Trinity was running away from the police and the agents in the first scene, one of the things she does is she jumps from one building in through a window and she does the arms straight out, hands flat, flying like Superman did, and then does the turn like he did to, you know, 
to make right. her way through the window so that she would fit. And then even in the end of the movie, when Neo is just standing there amongst a crowd of people in the Matrix and he just shoots straight up, like, like flies you know, straight up in the air, just like Superman used to do. So I was living for that. Neo does become like Superman by the end of it. Mm -hmm. So the city that they live in is kind of this mix of different cities. But I thought I caught a glimpse of a pre 9-11 trade center. I think so, too. I thought I caught that, too. Mm -hmm. It used to be like right after 9-11, if you saw a movie without the World Trade Center in a skyline shot, it was like, wait, oh, yeah, it's gone, you know, for, yeah. for a while. Now it's the opposite. It's been gone long enough that it's like when I see a movie that has the Trade Center in it, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right. That used to be there, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, when 9-11 happened, I was actually pregnant with my oldest daughter. And, um, and you know, that hormones on top of all of that made me a complete and total hot mess when 9-11 was going on and I could it, there were years literally years where I would watch movies and if I didn't see the trade center in there I would cry for years even after the fact even after I had already been through postpartum all of that stuff it would still just oh my god it would hit me to my core it's terrible so other nitpicks I have with this movie is that the science isn't good. I've already mentioned that for a science fiction film, the science is not good. Humans as batteries is one example. <laughs> yeah. It also pops up in other little ways. Like at one point, I think uh, one of the characters tells Neo, the body can't live without the mind, which is totally not true. We know for a fact that it can mm -hmm. because there've been all sorts of, wasn't Terry Schiavo, wasn't that one of the cases where, like, you had somebody that was still alive but brain dead? Mm-hmm, yeah. And there was a big deal about should we pull the plug on them, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's also, like, the dialogue so needed polishing. It really did. There's, like, yeah. Trinity at one point says they're talking about the squid things that are coming after them. Yeah. The sentinels, the sentinels. Yeah. And he's asking what a sentinel is. It's like a killing machine designed for one thing. And I'm thinking, okay, that's redundant. Like it's a killing machine designed for what to, you know, make Julian fries. <laughs> that's like saying 1am in the morning, whenever somebody says am in the morning, she just did that. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's like it's a killing machine you can leave it at that and it of course it also had the cobra line you are the disease and i am the cure you know that you know yeah. like although i have to say coming out of hugo weaving's mouth when he mm -hmm. says something like human beings are a disease a cancer of this planet you know you are a plague and we are the cure. It sounds so much better than Stallone saying, you are the disease and I'm the cure. You know? <laughs> I got to say that the fact that it was such a hackneyed line just shows how good an actor Hugo Weaving is because it's like, oh, yeah. it comes out both. He's super calm yet super menacing at the same time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is amazing to pull off. I love him. And I was actually really thrilled uh, to see him in Lord of the Rings later down the road. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's Agent Smith. 
And and he just he did an amazing job in that film too. He is just such a good actor, and I love him. Yeah, he is. Um, and not even that later down the road, it was like two years later that The Fellowship of the Ring came out, you know, mm -hmm. and he's mm -hmm. playing Elrond, which was a perfect choice. I've talked about what I don't like about the film a bunch. Let me talk about what I like. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to philosophy, the philosophy part of this film that I really love, because I was very into it when I was in my 20s, is mm -hmm. epistemology. How do we know what we know is real? Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing where we, you know, how can we trust, can we trust our senses? At one point, um, I think it was Tank. Um, I could be wrong, but one of the characters, I think it was Tank, turns to Neo and says, what does tasty wheat taste like? <laughs> you know, how do we know that that's what that tastes like? You know, we don't, <laughs> you, you don't. And how, how do we know? So if, if I eat an apple, I know what an apple tastes like. I can tell you it tastes like an apple, but how do I know that what I think an apple tastes like and what you think an apple tastes like is the same taste? How do we know right. we're tasting the same thing? Right. That is something I've always found fascinating. And the matrix film has bits of that sprinkled throughout the whole film. Like, mm -hmm. how do we know what's real? That's like a major theme of The Matrix. And that's one, one place where I think the philosophy in The Matrix is much more on point and not just kind of like fortune cookie-ish like it is mm -hmm. in a lot of other places in the film. Right, like when he goes to visit the Oracle and uh, and the, the Buddha-looking child, you know, shows him how to bend the spoon he, you know, he's like, you just have to realize there is no spin. Yeah. Because if you, you know, and that's when you know, realizes, like, if he knows that everything isn't real, he can manipulate it to how he wants it to be. Right. And that was his first clue, really, his first clue. Morpheus had been throwing him clues, but I really feel like that was a scene where he got it and or was starting where it was starting to click for him. Another thing I wanted to bring up is that the that that one of the things that I loved about this film, besides getting to see the kind of wire work we normally see only saw in Hong Kong action films brought to the U S and mm -hmm. the amazing special effects that they were now able to do with CGI and green screens was the soundtrack. The soundtrack is amazing. I think you get oh, Marilyn yeah. Manson and Rob Zombie and, and rage against the machine. Yes. Yeah. All this great music plus the score, the musical score that's a home run for this film, mm -hmm. in my opinion. It's one of the time, one of the things that they did not uh, slight. And too many films don't pay enough attention to that, in my opinion. Yeah, they let they let the music fall by the wayside when they could really use that to enhance the film. Yeah, I, you know, I, as I mentioned in the beginning of the film, I just really loved how it changed how films films were made. How modern American imagery is done, really, because down even down to the commercial level, it changed production value, how commercials were made, how television was made with the 360 cameras and the green screens and the and the wire work. It's just I, I it, it, it changed how things were done and made it better, honestly. 
it was a welcome change for me, that's for sure. And then, you know, it's like after you watch that film, when you go back and watch Total Recall, you're like, oh, wow. You know what I mean? Like, imagine what if Total Recall was made now. It would be a completely different but much better made film. All of those special effects would have been very well. Um, if they were done now, those special effects would have translated over very well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Philip K. Dick, I've mentioned before, his his works keep getting remade and remade on the screen because he was so far ahead of his time as a writer. So mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves also st- stars in Scanner Darkly, which was based on his work. And so is, I think the, rem- we'll remember it for you, Wholesale has been on there a ton of times. There's been like Total Recall. There's been just, and, and then there are like Minority Report, Blade Runner mm-hmm. has had a sequel since then. And mm-hmm. so a ton of these films have been based on his works and continue to be. The Man in the High Castle was made into a Netflix series. So I think that the Wachowski stole a lot, but they stole from the best. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to steal, steal from the best, just like Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that, that they could have done a little less stealing from from like, uh, well, let me just put it this way. OK, it's a gun foo movie, but my God, computers and computer targetization targeting, you'd think they'd be better shots. They were like worse than stormtroopers when it came to <laughs> shooting stuff like they expend they waste so many bullets and never even come close to hitting Neo or anyone. It's like, yeah. Well, just like the scene where they saved Morpheus. How, how could none of, not any single one of those bullets hit Morpheus and kill them? How is that possible? It's not. <laughs> but for the effect of the film, it was fun, you know, to see it, the, the bullets just raining down from the gun as, you know, while you're looking up at the helicopter. That was a very cool scene. So for the sake of the scene, I understand why they did it, but it really didn't make sense. So this is this is a problem I have not just with The Matrix, but with a lot of films that came in its wake that came Mm -hmm. after The Matrix, from The Matrix till now. And this Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why when we were talking about Casino Royale, I liked it so much, was things got so over the top with action films and so impossible that you no no longer cared whether the hero, the hero was obviously not going to die. They could do anything and not die. Right. (laughs) I think the film Wanted really, um, was it Wanted? Uh, it was one of those films based on a video game or, or a comic where it's just like so ridiculously overpowered that like, you know, that what's the point? Because there's nothing you're going to tell me that that character can't do, you know, and mm-hmm. I feel like the Matrix falls prey to this, but at least it was one of the first that did so that there wasn't this long tradition of it. Which is why by the time we got to Casino Royale, only six years later or seven years later, I I love that film because it's so down to earth. Like mm-hmm. just climbing on the crane, you think, oh, no, they're going to die. Whereas this, they're right. jumping across buildings. They're doing, you know, they're practically flying. They are flying, you know, and, um, <laughs> yeah. and you know, in Casino Royale, you could get hit hurt by a knife. And in this no one would bring a knife to a fight with Neo, you know? No, <laughs> they wouldn't like, even waste their time. I don't think a knife appears anywhere in the series. I don't remember, but... Um, I don't think so. Because, you know... It so... does, it does, it does. Trinity threw a knife and uh, killed one of um, the agents that was coming at them in, You're in, right. in one of the in final the, scenes. 
That was yeah. the only time I remember seeing a knife. It stretches credibility when you get too over the top. And I would have mm-hmm. liked, I know that it's in a computer and anything can happen because it's in a computer, but I would have liked if they had toned it down a little bit on that front and made it mm-hmm. seem like, like in the early versions of, of Nightmare on Elm Street, if you die in the dream, you die in the real world, you know? Right. So suddenly, right. and they, they tried to make it seem like that in the Matrix, you know? If you die in the Matrix, you die in the real world. But they never really emphasized that enough. And it never felt like anyone was in danger of dying in the Matrix, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so. until people did. That, that, was a whole, that was a whole other thing where so, sometimes things didn't make sense. Well, when Morpheus survived, how the hell did he survive that with everything that he went through? And then, and then, of course, I went down the path of, okay, if they're injecting him with drugs in the alternate reality, would it affect him in the actual reality? So how does that work? But I get, I guess it does because, I mean, they did go to a club in the, in the beginning when Neo was following the right white rabbit. He went to the club which let's be honest eric it looks like a club we used to go to back in the day the warehouse rest in peace Ah! it's just like every time i would watch that movie i'm like they totally walk through that club and that's where that's where their fashion designer got uh their idea for the costuming for this film i mean let's be honest or any industrial goth club from the 90s that you went to back in the day that's pretty much what they were wearing well, in particular, the one that we went to, you're right. But Well, yes, the one that we went to, yes, back in the day, back in the day. Yes, I, you know, and of course, that <laughs> that's another reason why I love it. It plays to the things that I love. You know, mm-hmm. I love that, yeah. that industrial music sound. I love that. So it's hard for me to be objective and be this critical of the Matrix because they, they give you all the, they give me anyway, all the stuff I really love, you know? Yep. <laughs> I, like I said, I love Rage Against the Machine and Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson and all of that stuff that they pack into it. And I love, you know, the first time we see um, Trinity, she's wearing skin tight latex. And I've loved that look since, you know, since I was a kid, since I first saw you know, Diana Rigg wearing it in the Avengers, you know, mm-hmm. I love the, the black cat suit, you know, I love that stuff. Yeah. Catwoman, but, Eartha Kit. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right but, there. Yep. But, you know, I have to keep it real and be like, okay, the Matrix, you were really good. You could have been the best movie ever if you had just taken care of these much easier to address issues of plot and dialogue yeah, the plot and dialogue. Some of it was just so cheesy. Like they did that one scene, you know, they do that one scene that they tend to do in every single action film where they're like, okay, I'm going to say a bunch of cheesy stuff while I'm setting up the best shot ever in my life. And I'm going to exchange cheesy things to say with my other people in my crew while we're getting ready for this awesome fight scene because we're awesome. <laughs> it's true you know, they all do it they all do it and they even did it in the matrix which i was slightly disappointed in that because i was just like please give me one action film where they don't do that just one one action film that's all i ask it's like we don't have to do this big you know team pep talk thing let's just get down to business and and you know get rid of the bad guy and move on to the next goal we don't have to you know do do the uh do the pep talk the pep talk sequence (laughs) if someone like 
Quentin Tarantino writes that scene, you know mm-hmm. the lines are going to be so much better, you know? Right. Right, so, right. so I can take it if it comes from Tarantino. If it comes mm-hmm. from someone else, it's like, oh, God, do we really need this? Just just get to the shooting part. You know? Yeah, yeah, just get to that part. The dialogue is really unnecessary, you know? So, yeah, that, that was one part I really... I really could have done without. Actually, I could have done. I could have done without Cipher altogether. I didn't really care for his character at all. I mean, I know he had to be in there because he was one of the bad guys. But in my opinion, some <sighs> of the best action films, and this gets back to the the acting thing where I was talking about Schwarzenegger. The best mm-hmm. acting films actually have the least dialogue. They're mm-hmm. films like. It's one of the reasons I like Conan. I like the Mad Max films, including the most recent one, Fury Road. There's very little dialogue in a lot of the film. There's just cars driving and people shooting and stuff. Yeah, there's a know? lot going on and you can follow it without people talking. The first Mad Max film, you know, again, possibly because of Mel Gibson's thick accent, mm-hmm. they didn't, there was very little dialogue at all. It was straight up action and, and that's all you need if you can tell the story without without having those moments where everybody's saying the cool line, like waiting for, you know, every so often it's much better if you can throw in that one cool line right when nobody's expecting it. Yeah. And then it's like really cool. But when everybody's trying to throw out a cool line at the same time, it just, it, it falls flat. Yeah. I am kind of a fan of the zinger. Like, you know, whenever an action character kills a bad guy, they have a good zinger. If it's good, it's good. If it's, bad it's really bad and we'll talk more <laughs> about that zinger when we get if we go, ever get back to some more of the james bond films because he mm-hmm. he had a lot of like james the james bond films are like right on with that you know? <laughs> yeah yeah they really are <laughs> uh, well i want to say thank you for choosing this film i wasn't sure if i was going to get made fun of for it or if it was something that you were on board with too and i was really happy that you were on board with this film because this is one of my all-time favorites i you know yeah the dialogue's not the greatest um yeah ted kind of slipped through neo but at the same time, this really was a, a groundbreaking film that kind of wrapped up all of my favorite things from my 20s into a nice, pretty package with a beautiful bow on it. And, and you know, a beautiful black latex bow. And to make it even better, it had Keanu Reeves in it because I do absolutely love him, even though Ted pokes through a lot of his characters, especially in his earlier career. But just thank you. <laughs> You're Thank welcome. Thank you for appeasing me. <laughs> yeah, and I think you made a good point that for us, mm-hmm. Generation X, yes, this film, not only does it represent the end of a millennium, it mm-hmm. represents for us the end of our 20s and the start of, like, adulthood, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, like, this film does sort of package up all the best stuff that came before it and it's mm-hmm. like this is your final goodbye to the 90s and like everything from yeah. before you know because yeah. after that you know there was no clubbing there was no you know nope. all that stuff that was the end of it you know that was kind that of was the-, the last year i went clubbing for real because yeah, after 1999 uh, in, 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 uh, what was it in March of 2000? That's when I married the father of my children and I was married for 13 years and 
shortly after that, I had two kids like boom, boom, right in, right in a row. My children are 27 months apart, but now they're a teenager and a young adult. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would, you know, once in a while have a night out with the girls, but it was never, it was never the same. It was never like the clubs we went to back in the day that were just so cool, so fun, so alternative. And it's kind of, it's kind of weird dressing up gothy after you've had a couple of kids to go out to a club. <laughs> and, you know, I was working on my master's degree after this and mm-hmm. the entire, my entire life shifted right around this time plus mm-hmm. everybody's life shifted after 9 11 you know so oh, yeah so yeah. and that only happened what bare two, a little yeah. over two years after this film so really mm-hmm. there really is a difference between the 90s and before mm-hmm. and then you know the the post 9 11 world yeah well the it, the new millennium you know the new millennium is yeah also when I was trying at that time, broadband was still very new. You know, it was still mm-hmm. a new thing. It'd been around for three or four years, maybe five years. I don't know. But residential broadband was, well, hell, it still doesn't exist, you know, in some places of the U.S., not far from where I live. Um, oh, yeah. But it, the, we definitely, like... I started putting my first first orders into Amazon around that time. That was the first time AOL Instant Messenger and m- instant messaging was happening. And yeah, chat rooms. Chat. So like, <laughs> really, there is. I think it there really is a divide that happens right around 1999, 2000, mm-hmm. 2001. Right around there, the world changed. At least mm-hmm. for people our age in the United States. Oh yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, our our adulthood just kind of got smacked in the face with reality. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate that about Gen X, because like right when we were becoming adults, everything changed in our country. And and we had a new normal that we had to get used to. And now we're dealing with it again. Yeah, so the economy totally collapsed. And we've now experienced that how many times, you know? Right. Like three or four times. Yeah. You know, I, I just people I don't think Gen X gets enough credit for, you know, for being as awesome as we are, because let's face it, we were built for this pandemic. We we were the kid. We were kind of the first generation to grow up being latchkey kids, having to be home and waiting for our parents to get home from school. You know, yeah, did you we have were, a, we were, did you have a key on a shoestring or on? You know, neck? I did. You know, I did. I did. I did. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I got myself in trouble, though, because I I got I got myself in trouble. And then my parents made me go to a babysitter after that. But I remember the first time they let me stay at home by myself when both my parents were working. I was like in the second grade, second or third grade. And uh, but I but I got into trouble. So they made me go to a babysitter and but, but whatever. Okay. So, you know. Well, Anyway, that being said, we were built for this. Like we've been through so many challenges and, and, you know, like with this pandemic, are you serious? We've been through so many changes at this point and we've already been used to being isolated and entertaining ourselves. We were built for this moment. Uh, you know, so I, (laughs) yeah. Okay. (laughs) We'll get through this too. (laughs) Now that we've, we've, um, you know, totally, um, 
alienated all of our audience that are millennials or or baby boomers or any anyone older or younger or digital natives. <laughs> now they're no longer listening. In fact, even the other Gen Xers aren't listening because we're getting too like nostalgic. We totally went off the deep end here. But, <laughs> and that's my but fault. <laughs> I'll just say, I'm going to wrap this up quick and say, um, if anyone wants to give us feedback, tell us what you think about this. Um, you can write us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight podcast, all one word at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, although we never use our Twitter. Um, <laughs> you could and and definitely like subscribe and give us five stars and a good rating on iTunes so that hopefully more people can find our show. But other than that, I'm going to say let's let's wrap it up. And this also puts an end to our first season of the show. So woohoo! Woohoo! Um, we will be taking some time off. Uh, you won't probably won't notice that because we have yet to release these podcasts. But <laughs> but um, when we do, when we do, <laughs> there will be a break between this one and the next one as we move from season one to season two. And hopefully, mm -hmm. by the time this is out, you guys will have uh, seen the Matrix Four and let us know how that went and. <laughs> stuff like that so until next time this is eric this is rosie and take care <laughs> oh, okay. we're like revenge of the nerds giving high fives it's amazing <laughs>